It's so good to see all of you. Uh, we have been traveling through a series uh, looking at the virgin birth, and so kind of wrap that up this morning. Um, over the two weeks ago, we talked about the virgin birth and how it um, created a theology around the person of Jesus Christ and established part of his person of who he was. We saw how that was an essential doctrine. Uh, last week, we talked about how the virgin birth impacted Mary um, and how she was basically being uh, invited to humiliation and to isolation in her own uh, community. And so she was willing to, without hesitation, take that step of faith and follow the Lord. And then this week, what we want to do is talk about the virgin birth and you, and talk about how, God, how this virgin birth impacts your life and mine. So uh, our text comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 31. Uh, before we uh, read the scripture, though, I would like to just begin with a word of prayer. Can we do that? Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity to come here uh, before you, uh, to just spend time reading over your word, being reminded of uh, the reason for this time of year. God, we ask that you would um, give us tender hearts today. Uh, as dads, we need tender hearts. As husbands, we need tender hearts. Lord, our parents here need to be uh, pliable and usable in your hands. Lord, we need to be refined so that when we go into our workplaces, we can reach those around us that are looking for answers and hope. Lord, may we, by the hearing of your word today, be so transformed. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet to read Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 30. We'll read 30 through 31, and then 34 through 37. Luke chapter 1, here we go, beginning at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. You may be seated. Um, just two quick reminders before we jump into this. Uh, words of announcement. At the front, on the top of your bulletin is some information about a lady's cookie sharing, and that happens this afternoon at 2 o'clock, so check out your bulletin. You can see that. And then also next uh, Friday evening, we have our Christmas Eve candlelight service here at the church. We invite you to come. Um, it's always a really wonderful time of celebrating uh, Christmas, and then um, we'll circle around the sanctuary and sing Silent Night with our candles and just look forward to that time together. So that's next uh, Christmas Eve night, Friday night at 5 p.m. Um, so let's go ahead and dive into the scripture together. Uh, it says, so the angel arrives, um, has an announcement for Mary, verse 31. Here's the announcement. It says that, uh, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 32 that this son will be the son of the most high. That is, that this will be the son of God that you're going to give birth to. And he says in verse 33, of his kingdom there will be no end. So basically, this announcement that comes to Mary is that she is going to have an overachieving child to the very max that this is going to be the Son of God and that this will be the person who rules all of the world. Um, and you would think that Mary might have some questions about that. I want to know a little bit more about this son that I'm going to give birth to and about this miraculous uh, announcement that you just made. You'd think she'd want to know more about all that. But instead, Mary's curiosity is focused in a different direction. She wants to know how this is going to happen. 
She says in verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? In other words, if I'm going to have a baby, how do you propose that I get pregnant when there's no man involved? Are you talking about the baby that Joseph and I will give birth to? Is that the baby that you're referring to here, Gabriel? Because it seems to me like you're talking about, I'm going to get pregnant before the two of us ever get together. Is that what you're saying? Now, I think personally, as I'm reading through this, I think that's a perfectly logical question for Mary to ask. I think Mary is well within her rights to inquire about this. She knows about the birds and the bees. She knows how things work. And this is what stands out to her. This is her question. Sir, uh, what you have just said does not seem like something in the realm of the world in which I live, like something that would be possible, how do you propose that I get pregnant? Well, the angel Gabriel tells Mary how this is going to become, how she's going to become pregnant. He says in verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, I did a little word study on that word overshadow, and it comes from the Greek word episkiazo, and I discovered that it means, got a slide for you here, and it discovered that it means what you would kind of expect, that a shadow is cast over or comes over an individual and that the shadow produces or has a supernatural effect. So that when a person's in the presence of the shadow, when the shadow casts over them, something supernatural takes place. This word epikiazo is the same word that's used over in Matthew chapter 17, in Mark chapter 9, and in Luke chapter 9, when each of those gospel writers describes Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's got Peter, James, and John with him. All of a sudden, Moses, poof, flash of lightning, standing next to him. Then whoosh, here comes Elijah, and they're standing there having a little conversation. And Peter, James, and John all fall under their knees, and Jesus pulls out of his, pulls, you know, pulls back his, his normal clothes, and he steps outside, and you can see the big S on his chest, and his glory is unveiled. And Peter, James, and John are all struck by this. Peter says, let's just set up some tents and just stay here for the rest of existence. Uh, they're just so uh, just overwhelmed by Jesus' glory. And it says there, look at, look at Luke chapter 9, verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and epikiazoed them or overshadowed them, and the disciples were afraid as they entered the cloud. So this cloud envelops the disciples while they're there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus shows them all of his glory, and this cloud envelops them, and the power of God is clearly in this cloud. Uh, this overshadowing word appears one other time in Scripture in the book of Acts. Um, Acts chapter 5, Peter's preaching the gospel. Lots and lots of people are responding. This is the very early days after Jesus has ascended back up to heaven, and they've been waiting on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. People are responding in droves to the gospel. And one of the ways that convinces people that Peter is telling the truth about Jesus is because of all the miracles that Peter and the other disciples are performing. It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, that the power of God was so thick upon Peter that the people even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that when Peter would pass by, right, when he would come by, at least his shadow, epikiazo, might fall on some of them, and the people, just by being in the shadow of Peter, were miraculously healed. Again, the point is that the shadow has supernatural healing powers, including the ability to make a virgin pregnant. You say, Gordon, I appreciate what you're saying, but what you're describing here this morning sounds very hocus-pocus. I mean, this sounds like the stuff of fairy tales. Well, you would be in good company because Mary has those same doubts about this virgin birth. Mary shares that uh, same thing. And not only does she share those doubts about this supernatural conception, but I think it's worth pointing out that her doubts were expressed while talking to an angel. Does anybody else see the irony in that? 
Mary is questioning an angel about something supernatural taking place to her, uh, in, her, in, her, in her body. Um, great irony there. Moving on. Now, I want to take a moment and clarify. If you didn't get it, just think about it. It'll hit you on the way home, okay? I want to take a moment and clarify something that the Catholic Church has taught for years on this, uh, this concept here, and that's the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Perhaps you have, some of y'all have maybe heard that before. This doctrine actually has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. Rather, this doctrine has a lot to do with the birth of Mary. Uh, this doctrine teaches that Mary was conceived by, via a virgin birth. It, she was conceived without sexual relations, and that therefore Mary herself was born out from underneath of the curse, and that Mary was therefore born with no sinful nature. This doctrine was affirmed by the church in 1854 by Pope Pius IX. I got a statement for you here, the official statement that he made in 1854, December 8th. The most holy Virgin Mary was, in the first moment of her conception, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, preserved free from the stain of original sin. And so that's the official statement of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Again, it has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. It has to do with the birth of his mother, Mary, that she was born without original sin. Um, and so, therefore, the child that she would have would be born without original sin either. What are they, tr what are they trying to do with this? Well, they're, one, they're trying to elevate Mary. The Pope was attempting to elevate the respect and the exceptionalness. I know that's not a real word, but I threw it in there. The exceptionalness of Mary to say that she was born of a virgin herself. And secondly, Pope Pius IX was trying to solve the problem of Jesus' sinful nature. We said a few weeks back that the doctrine of the virgin birth allows for Jesus to be born out from under the curse of Adam. Everybody that followed after Adam that would come in the seed of Adam, every human being that would be born would be born with a sinful nature. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, a sinful nature always universally results in, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But with Jesus being born out from under the curse, he was not born with a sinful nature. Therefore, he did not, it didn't universally, it did, he didn't, what am I trying to say here, right? <clears throat> I'm off notes, trying to explain stuff from a couple of weeks ago. I don't work that way. But in any case, Jesus was born without a sinful nature, and so he wouldn't sin. Um, in other words, he was born without a natural bent toward disobedience and lying and jealousy, the things that come very natural to us. Jesus was a wholly different kind of person, namely that he had no sin nature. His instincts were to obey the will of his Father and to live according to the Bible. So Jesus came into the world like Adam and Eve came into the world, uh, perfect. He had no natural bent toward sin. So with the Immaculate Conception, God has, uh, under this teaching, has the perfect mother into whom he can plant a holy seed in order to make the perfect baby. You follow that, the logic anyhow. The problem with this teaching in the Catholic Church is that this account appears nowhere in Holy Scripture, and it appears nowhere in church tradition. And I'm not saying this as an attempt, as a quiet attempt, to critique the Catholic theologians. They know this. They know that this doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. They know that this teaching doesn't appear anywhere in church tradition. They acknowledge us readily that this Marian doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is not based in something taught in Scripture, nor is it based in church tradition, but rather it has been based upon the authority of what the Pope says. In other words, the office of the man established this as church doctrine. And what makes this doctrine so dangerous and unique is that for the very first time in the history of the Catholic Church, think about this, church has been around over a thousand years come 1854. For the first time in the history of the Catholic Church, the Pope's words are taken to be the, at the same level as that of Holy Scripture. It is as though when the Pope speaks, it is thus saith the Lord. And that's the way it's been in the Catholic Church since 
1854 till now. Now, I'm not here to pick a fight with your Catholic roots, because I know that we have many people here in our church that have deep feelings about the Catholic Church and have been raised in that, and so I'm not here to pick a fight with that. But when it comes to the issue, please, please hear me. I'm not here to pick a fight with that, so you, you know, don't hit me on the way out the door today. Um, but when it comes to the issue of where does truth come from, where does truth come from? Friends, I look no further than this book. But because in my view, in my humble opinion, and I mean that, in my humble opinion, when our theological teachings are unmoored from the Scriptures, they cease to be authoritative. Let me say that again. When our theological teachings are unmoored from the Holy Scriptures, they cease to be authoritative. People can have and express opinions. They can say, I think. They can say, I believe. I do that. We all do that. But when it comes to the issues of absolute truth and establishing church doctrine and where I put my hope and trust for eternity, I dare not rest such things on the opinions of men. Rather, I want to put my hope and my trust for eternity in what God thinks. And as we say around here, you don't have to wonder what God thinks. He wrote it down. So we've got Mary questioning, how is all this going to happen? I don't know how this is going to work, she says. I, don't, I know about the birds and the bees, and you're telling me something's going to happen here to my body, and I don't know how it's going to happen to my body, but I, I, I'm asking the question. So Angel Gabriel says, anticipating that Mary would ask her this question, he says, Mary, um, the power of God is going to epikiazo you. It's going to overshadow you, and you're going to have this supernatural effect in your physical body. That's how this is going to happen. Mary, if that's too difficult for you to wrap your head around, if that's too much for you to believe right here in this moment, let me tell you something, Mary, that your old Aunt Elizabeth, in verse 36, he says, your old Aunt Elizabeth, who is in her old age, has already also conceived a son, and this is in fact the sixth month of her pregnancy, she who is called barren. She had never had any children before, and she was well beyond the years of childbearing, and Elizabeth is pregnant now. So Mary, you can go and see your Aunt Elizabeth, and you can be confirmed that indeed this is going to happen for you as well. So, um, Gabriel's basically saying, look, I serve at the pleasure of the Almighty God in heaven. And I've served under him for my entire existence. And I have seen his power. And I can tell you, Mary, I'm here to tell you now, in verse 37, he says that with this God whom I serve and whom you worship, nothing is impossible with him. If God wants to suspend the natural laws of the universe, Mary, God can do that. That's what makes him God. And that's why we call him the Almighty. All right, well, that brings us to the end of this passage for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask the question that we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I appreciate the insights into the virgin birth. And now I've got that immaculate conception thing straightened out in my mind. I appreciate that. But this sounds more like something you should be talking about to a seminary class. I don't see what possible difference any of this could make. What difference does this make to my life? Well, y'all ask the best questions. I just want to compliment you on that. And it seems like you ask those great questions week in and week out. So um, being that you ask such good questions, let me see if I can answer that. Um, I got two differences that this makes to your life and to mine. The first issue, or the first deals with the issue of doubt. Um, I find it somewhat reassuring that the mother of Jesus, a woman who was handpicked by God for her holiness, for her consistency of character and life, for her maturity, 
a woman of great faith who said yes to God without hesitation, that this woman, this great lady, the mother of our Lord, that even she had doubts about the virgin birth. And as we noted earlier, she even doubts this while conversing with an angel. So if you and I have doubts, I think that puts us in good company, right? Fair enough? It's okay to have doubts. Mary had doubts. As I said a couple of weeks ago, no one ever lost their spot in heaven because they asked Jesus a question. However, when doubt becomes our status, when doubt becomes our position, then doubt is no longer just a curiosity. Doubt becomes unbelief. And I see this in a lot of Christian circles these days. People who go to the Holy Scriptures with the presupposition that the natural laws of the universe ought to apply when it comes to biblical interpretation, to how we handle and deal with and evaluate the words of this book. Meaning that if something looks miraculous in the Scriptures or if it smells miraculous in the Scriptures, then we just dismiss it, move on, throw that out. Friends, that's not doubt. That is a position. That is unbelief. And I do have to wonder, again, I humbly say this, I do have to wonder, are those people Christians? I mean, they don't believe the most basic fundamental things that Jesus himself believed and taught and practiced and performed. So doubt is okay as a curiosity. But when that curiosity transforms into a worldview and it becomes how we evaluate the stories and the accounts of the Bible, we have to wonder, is that person truly a believer? Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. Friend, we don't get to have Jesus while clinging to our naturalist worldview. So there's real danger involved, not when Christians doubt, but when that doubt solidifies into an official position in how we evaluate God's word and the person of Jesus Christ, that's something for us to be aware of, something for us to think about. The second difference that this makes to your life and to mine concerns the omnipotence of God. Look again at what the angel says in response to Mary's question. He says in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Notice the totality of that statement. He didn't say most things. He said, all things, nothing is impossible with God. The angel Gabriel was reminding Mary of an essential truth about God, namely that God is omnipotent. I've got a slide for you here. The word omnipotent is a Latin term. It's actually a compound word. It comes from the two terms omni, meaning all, and potens, meaning powerful. And when you put the two together and you get all-powerful. That is who God is. God is om omnipotent. He is not a God in the universe. Let me say that again. He is not a God in the universe. He is the God of the universe. Friends, God does not share our limitations. God does not share our finitude. God does not share our vulnerabilities. And this attribute of God is affirmed elsewhere in Scripture. In speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, who was doubting whether or not God could do the things that he had just told Jeremiah he was about to do, God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 27, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything, name it, too hard for me? 
After getting a crash course in the omnipotence of God, King Nebuchadnezzar said, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, The Lord does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? And then when Mary reacted with shock to the news that she would have the virgin birth, the angel Gabriel was unfazed and simply responded, Luke chapter 1 and verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Friends, that is the God whom we serve. Nothing, the totality, complete. There's nothing outside that we can imagine or think that God cannot do. Jesus himself said, Luke chapter 18 and verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And finally, in Revelation 19 and verse 6, the host of heaven declare hallelujah, meaning praise the Lord. Why? For the, our Lord God Almighty reigns. Friends, the virgin birth reminds us that the God of the Bible is Almighty God. He is the omnipotent God of the universe. That's who we serve, not just a God in it. Now, this should be of great comfort to us as followers of Christ because the world in which we live is a very tough world. I mean, it is dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. We were talking this morning about college football and recruiting and how, oh my goodness, things have gotten crazy. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news lately, but things have gotten crazy in the world of college football recruiting. I'm not going to get into the details of it. I'll let you read or watch ESPN or read your news. But in any case, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. It's bite or be bitten. It's kill or be killed. I mean, it is a lock-and-load world out there, right? That's the world in which we live. And it gives me great comfort to know that in a world like that, I have an omnipotent, all-powerful God who is in control and in charge of everything. And it gives me comfort because I know that when God promises me something, he can actually back up his promises and bring things to fruition. He can cause things to happen that he promises that he said he would do. For example, when God promises that I will not be tempted beyond what I can bear, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, that God means I will not be tempted beyond what I can bear. When God tells me that no weapon formed against me will prosper, Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17, I know that God can do that. And I know, and it means that I know that those who honor God, God will honor irregardless of what others may say or do, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30. And it means that if I confess Jesus with my mouth and I uh, believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, that I will be saved, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Friends, a God who makes promises but is not all-powerful is nothing more than a God of good intentions. And that is not the God that we serve. You say, well, what about the other attributes of God? I mean, his eternality, his holiness. I mean, are those things not important? Of course those things are important. But what good is God if he is eternal but lacks the power to direct eternity? And what good is God if God is holy, but he lacks the power to do anything about my sin-filled heart? I mean, what good are any of the attributes of God if God lacks the power to back them up? Without omnipotence, without God being almighty, without God being able to suspend the natural laws of the universe like he did with Mary's pregnancy, then all we have is a God who means well, but he can't do much of anything to keep his promises, to redirect our lives, and to help us in difficult circumstances. What the omnipotence of God means is that I can trust God with any issue, that there is no problem that I can face, that God cannot handle, that you and I will never come across a problem that God is incapable of dealing with. Because God is omnipotent, I don't care how impossible the situation is. The Bible says there is nothing, 
Nothing, friends. Hear that. Hear the word of Gabriel. There is nothing. He has been servant at the pleasure of God in heaven for all of his existence. And he comes to testify to Mary to say, look, I'm telling you, Mary, there is nothing with this God that is not possible. What does the Bible say? Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Friends, if we get to the place where we really believe this in our heart, down deep in our soul, down deep in our gut, that's when we begin to see God work in our lives. So my question to us this morning as followers of Jesus Christ is, what are you believing God for right now? What are you believing God for right now? So that when God does it, because he can, you'll be able to give him the glory. You'll be able to point to him and say, hey, look, my God deserves all the credit for what just happened. You know, as followers of Christ, you should always have something on that list. We should always have something on that list, something that we're trusting God for, something that we are believing God for, whether it's related to work or with family or with our children or our grandchildren. It doesn't matter. We should have something on that list. And if we don't have something on that list, and if we don't have something that we're believing God for, friends, that's an insult to the almighty God of the universe. We are robbing him of the opportunity to show his glory through what he does in our lives. Now, there's something else that I want to tell you the difference that this makes, and that is that this observation, or my observation, after 20-plus years in ministry, I've observed that most Christians do a really great job of trusting God in the crises of life. We do a great job of trusting God in the difficult circumstances for the big things, but the small stuff. We act like there's not really an omnipotent God that can handle or even cares to deal with those things. Um, I've been having trouble with my truck lately. Uh, I don't know if I've told anybody about this, but I've been having trouble getting it started. Um, sometimes I'll be out someplace, sitting in a parking lot, sitting in the driveway, wherever I happen to be. Uh, and, and I'll try to crank my truck, and the truck won't start. Um, and it's completely random. I'll sit there, I'll crank it like 30 times, right? Just trying to hit it. Lights will light up. I've done everything you can think of to try and diagnose what this problem is. I pulled the cables off of the battery. For those of you who are mechanics, I pulled the cables off the battery. You're thinking through, right? Going through them. Pulled the cables off the battery, hooked them back up, checked the battery itself. Everything's good there. I've, uh, I've pulled all the fuses that have anything to do with the ignition um, out of the fuse panel, checked all those things. Everything's checking out. Put some new fuses in there just to be sure, right? I pulled the steering column apart. I've checked the wiring inside of the steering column. I've gone everywhere you could possibly think of to try and get this truck to start. It's like I'll turn it. I don't get a rah, 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 so I know it's not the starter. I just get nothing, right? And so I, this is what happens. I sit there and I get frustrated. This happened to me probably a do, half a dozen times at least over the last month. And, uh, and, and I, like I said, I'll be someplace and I got somewhere else I got to go. And finally I get so frustrated. I'm just like, Lord, will you please call my, cause my truck to start? Right? And so you, you, know, you, have to, you pray that prayer of frustration. But I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm beyond my frustration now. I really need you. I believe, Lord, you can do this. And so wholeheartedly, I say, Lord, I pray that you'd cause my truck to start. And I, I'm, I'm not lying to you here. I, I was a little embarrassed to even use this example this morning because what y'all might think of me, but within a, within a crank or three, the truck starts. I mean, I'll sit there for 20 minutes banging on the battery, hitting on the fuse, pulling the steering column apart, going through all this rigmarole. And then finally, when I finally get frustrated enough and I pray, the truck starts. Now, I don't know what to do with that. I'm sure there's some... So there's some mechanic that could go out there and go, well, this is what your problem is. But the Lord knows he's a, he's a better mechanic than the guy down the street, right? And he knows whatever it was that my truck needed in order to get started. And my truck started. 
Friends, I have prayed over projector screens or proje screen projectors. I have prayed over computers right before service starts that are crashing and everything's going bad. I've laid hands on those. I've prayed over lost keys to be found. I mean, if we have got an, an omnipotent God of the universe, then why not trust him for lost keys and for classes to get rescheduled and for mortgage payments to get paid and for money for missionaries? Why not trust God for all kinds of things? Listen, this is the omnipotent God of the universe that we're talking about here. Please know that there is no crisis too big, there is no crisis too small that God is unable to help us out with. And that when we do this, please hear me now, when we do this, we please God. We honor God. Friends, we give him a platform and an opportunity to show his glory to the world. That, hey, look, my truck starts. I can't explain it, but it did. So trust him, friends, for parking spaces. Trust him for the car to crank, and you watch what happens. You say, Gordon, wait a minute. Does, wait a minute. Well, hold time out just a second. I got, well, got one more question for you. Does this mean that if I pray for something that God's going to give me whatever it is that I ask for? Because I'm I'm, I, I can pray for some things, right? Uh, I mean, Christmas is coming, right? No, friends, that's not what this means. That's not what I'm saying at all. Yes, God is omnipotent, and yes, he can do whatever we ask, but he's also loving enough not to give us everything we ask for, especially if he knows it's not in our best interest or if he knows that it doesn't match up with his will. So will God automatically do everything that we ask him to do just the way we ask him to do? No, but God will solve every issue that we bring before him in his time and in his way. And sometimes he'll solve it the way we ask, and sometimes he'll solve it even better than we even could have imagined. So let's conclude. Knowing that we have a God for whom nothing is impossible, that should give us a quiet confidence with which we can face every obstacle in life and face it with utter peace and without fear. And so when I find myself despairing, and sometimes I do, and sometimes when I find myself discouraged, and sometimes I do, all I have to do is remember, Jeremiah 32 and verse 27, I am the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Or Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or Luke chapter 1 and verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. I want to close this morning with prayer, and I want to put our preaching to action. We have a good friend, a missionary that our church has supported for many years, and she is in Mexico right now, and she has uh, got COVID, and she went on a ventilator, I believe, last night. And uh, her name is Chris Garcia. She was actually here at our church back in October. And I want to just take a few moments to pray and petition the God of the universe, who is omnipotent and who can heal her physical body. And I know a lot of people have been praying for her. I've been getting text messages and emails over the course of the last 48 hours. And I just want to lift her up as we um, head into this time of communion. So let's bow our heads together and let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, first we thank you for speaking to us this morning, for reminding us in the story of Mary who you are. You are not a God in the universe. You are the God of the universe. Lord, we lift up to you our good friend, Chris Garcia. We ask, Lord Jesus, as she has faithfully served you these many years, that if it be your will, that you would bring miraculous healing to her physical body. Show your glory one more time in her life. 
Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your shed blood, for your broken body. We're reminded that a relationship with you is only possible because of your death, your suffering, your sacrifice, your humiliation. Lord, we bring a multitude of concerns and things that weigh heavy on each of our hearts and our homes, our families. And just in this quiet space this morning, Lord, perhaps we might be so bold as to petition you, the God of the universe, to work on our behalf. Direct our prayers, we pray. Speak to us. Hear us during this time. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.